Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. So I'm glad to be back and I've got an exciting show for everybody today. Our feature story is going to be talking about Sangamo Therapeutics and I covered them maybe two years ago and since then a lot has changed so we're going to talk all about the updates that have gone on with the company and see where they're at today. And I also have kind of a special segment we're going to do today because I was lucky enough to get into an email exchange with the Senior Vice President and Head of Business Development at Sangamo, Melita Sun Jung. So I'm going to be able to share some insights from that exchange that I had, and I think there's some interesting nuggets there that we can take away. So we're going to get all into that, and I want to thank everybody for all your support and your comments and emails, so please keep that up. I, uh, I do appreciate it. And before we get into our main story today, I want to talk about a couple of news stories that came out this past week. And the first one is from a company called BioXL Therapeutics. Their ticker symbol is BTAI. And they're trading now at about a $1 billion market cap. And what we heard this week is that they announced results from a Phase 1B2 study of one of their main drugs, BXCL501. And this is in the treatment for opioid withdrawal symptoms. And... What they showed here is that there was no significant impact of their drug on withdrawal symptoms for opioid addiction. Now, there were some complaints with the study. They, they didn't seem to plan it very well because there were even some patients in the study that were still on opiates when they were in the study. So, you know, the data itself doesn't look great. They got a numerical improvement, but there was no significance with the actual study. So this is a failure from BioXL Therapeutics as far as I see it, even though the safety was okay. But for us, really, we do want to see efficacy in some of these early studies. Now, I'm not too worried about this from the company standpoint as a whole. And the reason for that is that the agitation market itself is still very significant and I think merits a higher valuation for the company. So to give some context on that, there's 13 million USA patients that have this agitation problem in the targeted indications that BioXL is looking at. So the main indications that they're looking at is schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, for which the NDA has already been submitted. They're also looking at dementia, and at this point, they are about to do an end of phase two meeting with the FDA and start a registrational trial in the second half of this year. And then they're also looking at delirium, agitation associated with delirium. And this phase two readout is going to be coming in Q1 of 2022. So this is a huge patient population that I think really justifies a higher valuation for BioXL, even though they weren't able to see positive data in the opioid withdrawal trial. So for this reason, I added to my position. But the main reason why I wanted to add today is because we're going to be seeing some updates in mid-2021 for their oncology program. And we haven't seen too much related to these programs yet, so I think it could be a big mover for the stock as well. We're going to see updates in prostate cancer as well as a basket of solid tumors. And I think that trial is open label, so we'll have to take the data with a grain of salt. But if they do see promising data here, I think it could also send the stock a lot higher. So for that reason, like I said, I added to my position and I think that BioXL is a, is a buy here and that's what I'm doing. The other piece of news that we heard this week is that the FDA approved Bluebird Bio's Idocell therapy, which is the first anti-BCMA CAR T cell therapy for relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma. 
and this is great news for the company it is their second treatment that's approved now I think um, their first one is only approved in Europe but they are looking into getting approval in the USA this is in collaboration with BMY and was actually part of that BMYRT, the, the CVR that went on between the BMY and Celgene merger and I'm not going to talk about that too much but for the purposes of Bluebird Bio it's approved for relapse or refractory multiple myeloma and this is at fifth line or higher and I've done some analysis on multiple myeloma before when I did my CarioPharm analysis and the data that they showed indicated that there's around 6,000 cases per year of fifth line or higher multiple myeloma and I estimated that the max revenue from that could be around $500 million per year. Now we don't know exactly how they're going to price this drug and because it's a CAR-T sometimes they do garner a higher price tag than some of the other therapies but even with that it's going to be difficult for them to really penetrate the market too much so I think $500 million per year is a very stretch goal for them and our valuation should probably be closer to around 250 to 300 as like a max potential revenue. Now Bluebird's market cap today is around $2 billion, which is a big decrease from where they were when I originally took a position. And on the pop of this news, I sold my stake in Bluebird Bio for a pretty big loss. So it's unfortunate to see that. And there are a few lessons that I'm going to take away from, from that trade. But for me, Bluebird is kind of a complicated story right now because they are going to be splitting into two different companies and we don't really know how that's going to shake out. So I'm going to sit on the sidelines now and just see how Bluebird is able to navigate the split of the company moving forward. And so I want to move to our main story today, which is Sangamo. But before I do, we have to thank our sponsor, which is Gallant. And for those who missed it last time, Gallant is the stem cell banking therapy for pets. And we talk on the show often about new therapies that are coming on the market for humans, but a lot of these today are available for your pet. And so what Gallant is doing and what they've generated is a patented technology to isolate and store your pet's stem cells that are harvested during your normal pet's spay or neuter procedure. So rather than discard this tissue, your veterinarian will work with Gallant to store and harvest these stem cells for a later use when your pet is older and could benefit greatly from a stem cell therapy. Stem cells have been evaluated in hundreds of studies and have been shown to improve the quality of life of pets with everything from allergic skin conditions to orthopedic injuries and more. The plans start as low as $45 a month, and that's pretty low in my opinion, and you can find out more at Gallant.com. You can save $100 off the initial payments by using my coupon code BIO, that's B-I-O, and you can save $100 on those first payments. So check out the website, Gallant.com, stem cell banking for pets. And with that, let's get to our main story for today, which is Sangamo Therapeutics, ticker symbol SGMO. They traded last week at around $12 per share, giving them a market cap of around $1.7, $1.8 billion. Their 2020 net loss was $121 million, with Q4 2020 current assets sitting at $660 million, and Q4 2020 current liabilities at $144 million. And what Sangamo is trying to do is develop various in vivo and ex vivo editing therapies for human disease. And they seem relatively disease agnostic insofar that the technology they use is able to help patients. So they do seem very patient focused when it comes to that. And they have assets all across the different stages of the pipeline. They have one phase three asset, uh, one that I'm going to call SB525 because the name is kind of a mouthful there. 
and this is a gene therapy product that's able to improve hemophilia A. In phase one and two, they have two or three main assets, one in Fabry disease, another one in beta thalassemia, as well as sickle cell disease, and then they also were looking at MPS2, which is a lysosomal storage disorder, but that one has since been shelved, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. The company also has a number of preclinical assets, specifically focusing on CNS, neurodegenerative diseases, as well as oncology. And this is kind of a newer era for Sangamo, since I never really heard about many of these when I originally covered them a couple years ago. So we're going to talk about the implications of that moving forward. But the first thing I want to touch on is hemophilia A, because it's the furthest along program for Sangamo, and the one that I think their market cap derives most of its value from. So hemophilia A, and I've covered this like a long time ago. I think I did a couple videos on Spark, and uh, that included touching on Unicure and Biomarin. So it takes me back talking about this disease. But it's a blood clotting disorder due to a lack of a protein called factor VIII. So the coagulation cascade is kind of a complicated thing, but basically when you're missing components of that coagulation cascade, you are at risk of bleeding events. And bleeding events can be fatal if they're not treated quick enough. And there's a lot of debilitating conditions that surround that. And patients have to be very careful when they're doing any physical activity or even day-to-day -day stuff if the hemophilia is severe enough. So for hemophilia A in particular, it's a lack of factor VIII, that specific protein. And in order to treat hemophilia A, currently the main course of treatment involves infusions of recombinant factor VIII. So these are generated in a lab and what patients have to do is go through very tedious infusions of factor VIII in order to replace the missing factor VIII in their blood. And these infusions are very tedious because they have to be done very frequently, they're time consuming, and they're not always effective. And the reason for this is because you're doing an infusion you get a very high peak level of drug concentration and then a very low trough of drug concentration until you do your next treatment. And what this means is that patients sometimes are vulnerable to bleeds when their drug concentration is relatively low. So what the new therapies are trying to do is reintroduce factor VIII through a gene therapy. And companies that have been doing this already, Biomarin, Spark, Unicure, although they're not all in hemophilia A, so far the data look pretty good. They're, they're durable for the most part, and I'll touch about that in a second. And there are minimal safety issues. So often going to be some transient liver enzyme elevations, but often those uh, resolve themselves through corticosteroid treatment. The sector as a whole has been shooken up, I would say, and the reason for this is due to other companies besides Sangamo who are in the gene therapy space who have seen some recent negative news from the FDA or some safety concerns. So one of those has to do with a complete response letter, or a CRL, that was given to Biomarin for their Valorox treatment. And this is a treatment for hemophilia A as well. And on their PDUFA date, August 18th, 2020, the FDA denied marketing approval for this drug because they requested two additional years of safety and efficacy from their ongoing phase three trial to provide evidence of Valrox durability. And what this effectively did is it pushed the earliest date at which the FDA could approve the drug to the year 2022. So it's two years later than when Valrox would have been approved and when the company could have started generating revenue. So what this means is that any gene therapy is potentially liable to have to provide additional years of safety and efficacy data before the FDA is gonna consider approval. 
And so in, in later slides, I'm going to do a comparison of the timeline for Sangamo for us to get an idea of when we can start expecting Sangamo to start seeing revenue from their gene therapy in hemophilia A. So that's one negative thing that we recently saw in the space. The second piece of news that has shaken the gene therapy space was a clinical hold that was put on Unicure's hemophilia B asset. And this was due to the fact that one patient was recently diagnosed with a liver cancer, and there was a speculation that perhaps it may have been due to the gene therapy that was treated to this patient. Now since then, we actually saw like a week or two ago that Unicure released a report indicating that the liver cancer was likely not due to Unicure's treatment in this patient. So that has since quelled a lot of the fears associated with it, but you know, we have seen that Bluebird's therapy, their lentiglobin therapy, was also dealing with some issues surrounding safety. So the space, given the fact that there haven't been that many patients treated with these gene therapies, is still fragile because these safety issues could come up. So these aren't specifically anything to do with Sangamo's therapy, but because they are in the gene therapy space, it does have an implication for Sangamo. So this is Sangamo's therapy, SB525. It's a recombinant AAV6, and it will transduce a liver-specific human factor eight gene. And this is what the, the gene product looks like. It has a liver-specific promoter that is going to express the human factor eight B domain deleted transgene is what they call it. And so the latest data update that we saw was phase one and two data from ASH 2020. And in this study, of course, they focus on safety and efficacy. There were four different dose cohorts from nine times 10 to the 11 vector genomes per kilogram to three times 10 to the 13 vector genomes per kilogram. And there was an N of five in the highest dose cohort. In terms of safety, most of the safety effects were elevations in AST and ALT. They had one SAE of grade three hypotension and a grade two fever headache or tachycardia, and both of these resolved within 12 hours. Four to five of the high dose cohort patients required corticosteroid treatment for liver enzyme elevations, but all of these resolved with the intervention. If we look at the data, we can see here that uh, before treatment, they have a relatively low factor eight activity. And just to give some context here, the normal factor eight activity ranges from around 40% to around 150%. If you're a hemophilic, you have around 5% factor eight activity. And if you're severely hemophilic, you would have 1% or below. So we see here in all these patients after treatment, they get a nice increase in factor eight activity. It does tend to taper off overall. And I think some people are bringing up problems with potential durability. I think that it remains to be seen whether or not the durability is going to be a problem or not, but I think for us today, this is relatively positive data. If we look at the average here, the mean factor eight activity from week nine to week 52 is 70.4%, with the median coming in at 56.9%. So this is still above, say, 25, above 40, where we would expect some bleed events, but at these levels here, I would expect the annualized bleed events to be zero which is another way that the data can be shown here um, and that I think some other companies have shown data in the past. So I wanna switch gears now and talk about the approval timeline. And the reason for this is we wanna know how soon we can expect some kind of revenue from their hemophilia A product. So I wanna first look at Biomarin's timeline and then compare that to where we are with Sangamo. So for Biomarin, they dosed their first phase three patient in December of 2017 in November of 2019, they got full enrollment, 
And then based off of their phase one and two data and the interim phase three data, they were able to submit the BLA in December of 2019. Now, because they had a breakthrough therapy designation, they got a review within six months, and that's when we got the CRL in August of 2020. Now, the FDA is requiring the 24-month data, and that would put the estimated last patient collection at November of 2021. And if they can resubmit the BLA by December, they also get a six-month priority review because of the breakthrough therapy designation putting the PDUFA date to the middle of 2022, probably around August of 2022. If we compare that to Sangamo, the first phase three patient was dosed in October of 2020, and Pfizer says that the pivotal data readout is expected in 2022. And this is for a primary outcome of 12 month data because originally the primary outcome was expected to only be 12 month data. And now the FDA is coming back to Biomera and saying they need 24 months of data. This also assumes that 2022 is a faster enrollment period than Biomarin because we know how long it took for Biomarin to get full enrollment. So if they can hit that 2022 date, it's due to a quicker enrollment than what Biomarin did. And with COVID, I think that that might be a bit of a stretch. So this is probably a more generous timeline than we can expect. If all of this is true, we could expect that the 24-month data collection would be in October of 2023. If we can assume that the BLA submission would take about a month, the FDA has also granted fast-track designation for the SB525, and that would put the PDUFA date to mid-2024. So what this means is that we're going to have to wait until 2024 or 2025 before Sangamo can start realizing revenue from their hemophilia A asset. So this is useful for us because we need to be able to understand how quickly we can start to see revenue from these assets and input those into our model of revenue for Sangamo. The other thing that's useful to do is that when we're thinking about how the company is gonna be financed before they can start seeing revenue, we need to take that into consideration. And what that means is that until then, they're gonna either have to continue their partnership programs with new companies or do a dilutive cash raise in order to fund their operations. And we're gonna talk about that in a little bit later. And one thing I also wanna note is I didn't mention this, but the Hemophilia A product is in collaboration with Pfizer. Switching gears, I wanna talk about their phase one and two programs. So like I said, they have that phase three asset, then they have a number of different phase one and two assets, and then a lot of preclinical assets. So for their phase one and two programs, they have one gene therapy for Fabry disease, and this is called ST920. It's very similar to their Hemophilia A product in that they're just infusing a gene therapy to overcome the need for an exogenous recombinant therapy because in Fabry disease, patients also need to use a recombinant enzyme replacement therapy in order to improve the outcomes associated with the disease. It's a rare disease with an estimated 6.6 thousand patients in the USA, and the estimated enzyme replacement therapy sales sit at $1.5 billion per year. So it's a substantial market. Unfortunately though, it's a very crowded market right now, and I touched on this in my 4D molecular therapies video, so check that out. Amicus, Gallifold, Freeline, there's a, there's a lot of companies that are looking to commercialize therapies for Fabry disease, and the reason for this is because it's a great candidate for a gene therapy that could you know improve the standard of care today. Where Sangamo is at is that they've dosed their first two patients and they're planning to release initial data in Q4 of 2021. 
The next phase one and two program that I wanna talk about is their treatment for beta thalassemia or sickle cell disease. And this program is in collaboration with Sanofi. It is an ex vivo gene editing therapy whereby they take cells from a patient, edit them using their zinc finger technology, and either they're going to uh, edit a mutated gene or they're going to try to increase fetal hemoglobin expression in these cells, then put them back into the patient in the hopes of improving sickle cell disease or beta thalassemia. The readout for this is expected by Sanofi in 2021 at some point. They haven't been more specific with that date, but I assume that as we get further along in the year, they're gonna be more granular with it. This is the furthest along zinc finger program that they have going on. And I think for some people who are concerned about zinc fingers, a lot of it is due to the negative outcomes that were in their MPS2 trial. But I wanna assure people that editing cells ex vivo is a lot easier than doing it in vivo. So I would be a lot more bullish on this beta thalassemia program if you have any reservations about zinc finger effectiveness. Sangamo did show some data on their beta thalassemia program where they were able to show that in fact, they got a percentage of indels showing that there was editing going on in patients that received this drug treatment, BIVV003. So check that out if you wanna look at it. I think the program definitely has potential to be positive and it really is just gonna take us seeing the data. So this is another catalyst that's upcoming that I think would be interesting to take a position in before the readout. The last program I wanna talk about is MPS2. And now we haven't heard any real updates from the company about this program. And I'll, I'll discuss that why right now, but it's an in vivo zinc finger therapy. So what they are doing is using an adeno-associated vector to transduce three different zinc finger proteins such that they could edit the genome of patients and insert a gene in here, it's the human IDUA, in order to improve outcomes associated with patients. Now, the data update they showed us in 2019 did not show very much efficacy. They weren't really able to get the expression of this gene as much as they needed in order to improve outcomes associated with MPS2. Now, what I think the reason for this is, is not necessarily due to the fact that zinc fingers don't work because they absolutely do work. It's the fact that they needed to do three different transductions into the same cell and they were doing it in vivo. So the chances of all of these gene therapies working on the same cell and then also having the zinc finger cutting events all work and then inserting that new gene, I just think it was asking a bit too much for the technology today. So since we last heard that update, Sangamo mentioned that they were going to potentially hold off until a second generation zinc finger technology was gonna be developed and then relaunch the program with that better zinc finger technology. So. That was in early 2019 that we heard that update. And since then we haven't heard too much, so I think it's probably still preclinical right now. And we're gonna have to wait and see how it moves forward from there. So overall, I think Sangamo has a ton of potential. The revenue from their hemophilia indication isn't gonna come until 2024, so I think we have to keep that in mind. But if we're looking to see how this therapy is going to be in the market, it's also gonna be second to market. And this is because Biomarin's Valrox is going to be approved, hopefully, long before the Sangamo SB525 product is. Now, the indication itself has a pretty large patient population. There's 66,000 patients in the USA, and because it's a gene therapy that is able to 
significantly improve the quality of life of patients, I assume that pricing is going to be around $2 million, and this is due to previous reports from what Biomarin has said. Now, a couple of caveats around here and why I think some of these gene therapy companies are not realizing their full value is because with a democratic government today, I could easily see government getting in the way and barring these types of high price therapies in the market. So whether that means that Sangamo is going to have to come up with a creative way to uh, spread out the payment over a number of years, or they're going to have to do something else to overcome the barriers that governments are going to set out. I think that that kind of negativity around the sector is keeping gene therapy companies relatively underpriced until that can be kind of resolved. And the other thing associated with this is related to the safety concerns that I talked about regarding Unicure or Bluebird. I think in general, because so few patients have been treated with gene therapies, there's still some concern in the marketplace around whether or not these therapies are going to come to market and be a success. Setting aside that hemophilia A indication, their clinical pipeline, I think, is interesting. And in 2021, we're going to see some potentially real value added to the company. In Fabry or beta thalassemia or sickle cell disease, I'm going to think about taking a position before these updates come out in later 2021 because I think they could be big value generators for the company. Now, when it comes to their preclinical candidates, they could also show a lot of value. And once we see some proof of concept studies in humans, I think they will add value to the company as well. But because they're so early right now, I think the market isn't putting a very big price tag on them. Now, related to those preclinical assets, Sangamo has a number of pharma partnerships, and they've generated a significant amount of revenue from them. So far, they've received $815 million, and they have a potential $7 billion in potential milestones, as well as different equity purchases from these partnership programs. The biggest ones right now have been from Biogen and Gilead, and I want to talk a little bit more granularly about that. So for Biogen, they paid $125 million up front, $225 million in an equity purchase, and there's up to $2.37 billion in future milestones. Novartis paid them $75 million up front with up to $720 million in future milestones. Takeda has given them $13 million up front. Pfizer, $82 million up front with up to $625 million in future milestones. Sanofi, $20 million up front with $276 million in potential future milestones. And then Kite Gilead gave them $150 million up front, $50 million in an equity purchase with up to $3.01 billion in future potential milestones. So Sangamo has really been able to leverage these partnerships to avoid things like dilutive cash raises. So their balance sheet has been mostly funded by a lot of these programs rather than having to go to the market and fund their operations. So that's a definite value generator for the company. And then the other thing to consider is that normally when a catalyst comes up, we anticipate positive data if we take a long position. The reason for that being that the percent chance that the drug is going to be able to move closer to approval is increased a lot after they show positive data. Now, for Sangamo, that is also true, but often they're going to have achieved a milestone with one of these partnership programs that's going to make them realize revenue immediately. So this is a unique thing for Sangamo and why I think it makes sense to think about their upcoming catalyst as being a bigger mover than it would otherwise be. So I would encourage everybody to read the details of these deals to see what it is that will be paid to Sangamo if in fact they achieve positive data or achieve an approval. 
So with that, I want to switch gears now to my email exchange with the Senior Vice President, Head of Business Development at Sangamo, Melita Sunjung. And I was able to ask her a bunch of questions surrounding the company. And to her credit, they can't really share what's materially non-public information. And the reason for this is the sector is, is highly regulated. The SEC regulates what companies can tell people privately. So I want to thank Sangamo and Melita specifically for letting me share this information with all of you on the show. So the first question I wanted to know from Melita was as follows. I asked, we have seen a lot of excitement surrounding companies that use CRISPR methods to edit the genome. As Sangamo primarily uses zinc fingers, have you gotten any sense from your partners as to why they chose to collaborate with you instead of other technologies such as CRISPR? And Melita answered, and I quote, we are proud at Sangamo to have several blue chip pharma companies as partners, Pfizer, Kite Gilead, Biogen, Novartis, Sanofi, and Takeda, all of whom have collaborated with us to develop ZFP-based therapeutics. She goes on, we have signed an agreement with Biogen in February of 2020 on Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and 10 other targets. They were initially intrigued by data from our Tau program for Alzheimer's, but after discussing the science and assessing our capabilities, they wanted to expand the deal to many more potential targets and also include access to our AAV engineering efforts, as well as our manufacturing and process development expertise. For Novartis, with whom we signed a collaboration agreement in July of 2020, they came to us with neurodevelopmental target ideas. We had not initiated any research on these targets and ended up with an upfront consideration of $75 million and $25 million per target. This illustrates how much value a company like Novartis places in the therapeutic potential of our technology. The next question I asked, in general, I find that collaborative biopharma deals are met with mixed feelings in the investment sphere because it tends to signal that a company is not being acquired in the short term. Sangamo has seen a number of deals that have helped the balance sheet. Can you comment on the value you see these deals bringing to Sangamo? And what Melita answered, and I quote, as I mentioned earlier, we have multiple collaborations with blue chip biopharma companies that bring us important strategic and financial benefits. We aim to leverage our partners' therapeutic and clinical expertise, as well as commercial resources, to more rapidly bring medicines to patients. These partnerships are reflective of the value the industry sees in Sangamo's technology to address difficult diseases and expand our addressable markets. Third question I asked. Following up from the last question, some speculate that it will take getting Sangamo's preclinical assets through proof-of-concept studies before the company and its platform will be de-risked. Is there any truth to this? Melita answered, and I quote, It's important to remember that with every POC program, there are many variables including technology, delivery, biology, manufacturing, and other factors. For example, we have seen evidence of molecular editing in our foundational genome editing programs, which gives us great confidence that our platform works, and that it's about solving for some of the other variables with these programs. Every program we explore provides us with critical learnings that we apply in our research and drug development. And then the last question I asked, is it true that there's been a change in rhetoric in regards to Sangamo being acquired? Some investors have commented they've seen a subtle shift since 2018. Are you open to being acquired? If yes, what has changed over time? And then Melita answered, we've always prioritized both patients and our shareholders, and this has not changed. It is important to note that Sangamo has grown significantly as a business and progressed in the clinic. Now, I just want to give a caveat here. Melita and I did 
go back and forth with a bunch of other questions, but at the risk of sounding redundant, I presented a lot of that information earlier in the talk today. And these are the questions that I thought provided the most insight into what we value most as shareholders and investors. So the takeaways that I got from this, one is that Sangamo has full confidence in zinc finger proteins and zinc finger nucleases. And really, they would rather develop a second generation zinc finger technology rather than use a currently successful technology like CRISPR. And the reason why I asked her that question about CRISPR is that we've seen that technologies like CRISPR and companies that are commercializing CRISPR get these ridiculously high valuations despite being very early clinically. And to me, it seems like an opportunity that if Sangama were to just jump into CRISPR, they would have a potential to really gain significant market share without doing too much. Now, obviously, integrating a new technology is a lot of work, but if they're already going to go through the effort to do a second-generation Zinc Finger program, I don't see what the harm is in dabbling into CRISPR. I think the one reason why they're not doing that is because they don't want to say that Zinc Fingers aren't a viable technology, and I think they are a viable technology, to be honest. I think it was an unfortunate upset in the MPS2 program, not really due specifically to Zinc Fingers, but more the design of the technology otherwise with regards to the three different gene therapies they basically had to give patients. One thing I wanted to touch on is that the furthest along programs from Sangamo today are not zinc finger technologies. So most of the value that I see in the market cap is due to their hemophilia A program as well as their phase 1-2 programs that includes Fabry disease which is another gene therapy that has nothing to do with zinc fingers. And so that is really something to keep in mind that if people are concerned about the zinc finger viability as a technology, their furthest along programs have nothing to do with zinc fingers. The second thing is that Big Pharma also sees potential in all of the programs that Sangamo has, but I think that because they haven't been validated, at least the preclinical programs, the partnership level relationships are going to continue. And this ties into my third point here, which is I think that the CNS program that Sangamo has jumped into, as well as the oncology one, has a ton of potential, and companies like Biogen that have seen a lot of upsets lately with their CNS program, and could potentially see another upset if aducanumab isn't approved, that these companies would see Sangamo as a real potential uh, backup plan in case their current assets don't prove viable either. And that what it's gonna really take is for Sangamo to develop those CNS or oncology assets into proof of concept studies in humans before somebody like Biogen or Gilead would really consider taking a larger shareholder position since they already own some of the equity of the company and just outright buy the company. Related to that, the CNS programs are leveraging Sangamo's zinc finger proteins or zinc finger nucleases. So if you're concerned that Sangamo's zinc finger technology isn't viable, then that's something to consider here because all of their CNS assets are related to zinc fingers. Their oncology program is also a zinc finger based technology, but it's ex vivo. And like I mentioned, I'm a lot more bullish on an ex vivo zinc finger treatment because it's just easier to get edits in cells ex vivo than it is in vivo. And that's pretty much what I have on Sangamo. I think the company as a whole has a ton of potential and I would be interested in taking a position before some kind of readout that we're gonna see later in 2021. I think that I also want to keep an eye on these preclinical assets because if they're able to show good data in their CNS or oncology program, I could easily see the value of Sangamo increase substantially. So that's what I have on Sangamo. The other thing I wanted to do is compare Sangamo's market cap to some of the other companies that are in the space. 
And I like these charts because it really contextualizes the value that the investment sphere places on these companies. So Sangamo today is sitting at around a $1.2 billion enterprise value. And if we compare this to some of the CRISPR companies, uh, CRISPR Therapeutics is sitting at $7.6 billion, and Beam is sitting at $4.8 billion enterprise value. And the funny thing is that both these companies are very early clinically. CRISPR has been able to show some data in beta thalassemia, but Beam is totally preclinical right now, and they still have like a three times increased enterprise value than Sangamo. Now, Beam is doing something a little bit different in that they're trying to make a platform for CRISPR, so there's a little bit of a different valuation that goes on there. But I think that this really shows us how overvalued some of the CRISPR-based companies are right now. And it really shows the power of hype, and we can see this in, in the valuations today. A company like Biomarin isn't super useful to compare to Sangamo because they're a revenue-generating company through their assets. They made $1.8 billion in 2021, and they're actively clinically developing other programs. So Biomarin isn't a great comparison, but I do like the comparison to Unicure because them and Sangamo are both at a similar stage developmentally with their hemophilia program, and Unicure just put out this report showing that their product likely did not cause the liver cancer shown in that one patient. Unicure is going to be presenting data from their pivotal phase three program in Q2 of this year, and they're also going to be updating on their preclinical pipeline. And one thing that Sangamo has that Unicure doesn't is a very strong preclinical and clinical pipeline. Unicure's is relatively thin, so I think here this comparison shows that Sangamo is relatively undervalued. And then finally, I wanted to put Bluebird up here just for fun. They're going through a complicated thing right now because they have these approved therapies, but they're going to be deciding to split the company up in one half being focused on oncology and the other half focused on hematologic disorders. So we're not really sure how this is going to shake out, but the company's enterprise value is $1 billion. So it's, it's less than all of these other companies, and they have two approved therapies right now. So if you think that Idacel and Zinteglo are going to do better in the market than what is currently valued right now, they could be seen as undervalued. For me, Bluebird has been kind of a mess with the issues surrounding safety, though. So for me, I'm going to be sitting on the sidelines and just seeing how all of that plays out, including the new uh, organizational structure of the company. And in terms of upcoming catalysts, I think I'm going to keep a rolling chart going from now on because it's nice to see what we're going to be looking forward to in the short term. So we saw the update from BTAI as well as Bluebird. And then in April specifically, I'm looking forward to an update in Cardiff, Trillium, Acadia, and Anovis. To do a quick portfolio wrap up, I'm sitting at around negative 7% for the year. And this puts me below all the other indices, unfortunately. I'm very close to ArcG though, so they better watch out. I mentioned that I sold my Bluebird position and I added to my BioXL. And I also took a position in Replimune, which is a viral oncology company. And I might do a video on them specifically. They have an interesting abstract submitted for AACR that I think might be really bullish for the company. And I might talk about that in another video. But that's it for me today. I want to thank Sangamo and Melita for allowing me to share this insight with my listeners. And let me know what you think. Send me an email at matthewlapoire at gmail.com or tweet at me at matthewlapoire. So with that, thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you next time.